really understanding your paint as a material is your pigment particles are really like grains of sand at the beach. Like they're that just microscopic, it's like so much smaller. And that when you're painting with it, the water that you introduce is sort of pushing those little particles around. So on a micro scale, it's sort of like when you're in the in an airplane and flying over um, wetlands and you see kind of all these rivulets and markings that the water makes on the land. That's sort of what's happening when you're painting with watercolor. So it's kind of like this understanding of what the materials do naturally and alive can kind of help us to understand how to then paint with it. My name is Alexis Joseph and I started Case for Making a small art supply store on the Outer Sunset about six years ago. And about four years ago, we started making our own watercolors. Case for Making is a store in San Francisco in the Sunset District that sells handmade watercolors, paper goods, and other delicious arty items. Alexis Joseph and her team of paintmakers have co-created over 200 colors over the past four years, landing on a consistent palette of about 72 hues. Walking into Case for Making feels like walking into a candy store, but also a chapel. Jars of pure pigment line the walls, elegant blues and purples, vibrant pinks, luscious reds. I'm drawn to them all with the excitement of a child in the penny candy aisle of a general store, but I also find myself walking softly and reverently towards the jars, like a painter getting ready to pray. Welcome to Material Fields, where we talk to creative people about the materials they have fallen in love with. Each episode focuses on a particular material and maker. Our guests are small business owners, working artists, and educators. So far, we've covered clay, wool, wood, liquor, the body, sound, fire spinning, time, paper, and glass. I'm your host, Katherine Monahan. Each show is accompanied by an original piece of music created by associate producer Liz Delise. We'll be playing the song inspired by last month's episode on glass with Deborah Cheresco at the end of this episode. Material Feels is sponsored by Brown Sugar Botanicals. Brown Sugar Botanicals is Oakland's black, queer, and trans-founded CBD company, proudly crafting herbal CBD-infused products grown by resilient communities. Brown Sugar Botanicals will be reopening their online shop June 1st, 2021. For their loyal customers who have shopped with them in 2020, Look out for an email about a special update soon. Brown Sugar Botanicals thanks you greatly for your patience and unwavering support. Don't forget to follow them on Instagram at Brown Sugar Botanicals. I started this show because I believe that creativity is a human right, and I think the arts should be accessible and inviting to as many people as possible. I believe our relationship to the material world is a sacred one, an intimate, evolving relationship that can teach us about who we are at present, where we've been, and where we might go. Today, we are exploring pigment in the context of watercolor. I have been fascinated with watercolor since I was about 15. Watercolor is an accessible medium because it is portable, easy to clean up, and you don't need many supplies or much space to start creating. I have a little pouch of art supplies I carry with me most places, a pocket-sized sketchbook, a travel watercolor palette, and my favorite tool, a water brush, which is a brush that has a plastic squeezable hollow barrel you can fill with water. These three items allow me to paint anywhere, when I'm waiting for a friend to meet me, on the train, back when I used to commute, 
at parties or bars when I got tired of talking. Anywhere I feel the urge to paint. Watercolor is also a great medium for beginners in art. When you dip your paintbrush in the color and you make your mark on paper, it can feel like magic. And if you're open to exploring, making a mess, trying something new, that magic can be intoxicating. Before we talk too much about painting, what is pigment? How does it turn into watercolor? And how did Alexis fall in love with this material? I stumbled upon some pure pigment in Germany, actually, and became fascinated with it. And that began me on this kind of quest to understand pigment as it relates to color as a material. From the earliest times when humans were gathering and using earth pigment, so that's uh, any sort of ochre or umber, and those were just uh, available in certain deposits all over the world. Color ranges that you can see there are a lot of reds, a lot of oranges, yellows, browns, limestone deposits that have been kind of like leached over time with different minerals and chemicals that are in the soil. Mm. So it's sort of like limestone is like the, a calcium carbonate, right, from little invertebrates that were in the bottom of the ocean that then kind of become seeped with iron that's kind of leaching through the ground that then colors it in like these kind of rich reds, yellows, oranges, sometimes like more purpley browns. So then when you crush that down, like pigment has to be insoluble so it, it doesn't dissolve in water. A lot of earth or soil is has a lot of um, biological elements in it, like broken down leaves and things like that, which all over time are water soluble. Watercolor involves three components, a pigment that creates the color, a binder that makes the particles of that pigment stick together, and the water you eventually add to move it across the paper. Pigments can come from a range of materials and each color has a rich history we could spend an entire episode on. Pigments have been used for painting on the walls of caves, on people's bodies, and on other surfaces as a method of storytelling, self-expression, and adornment. Harvesting pigments is a practice born about 40,000 years ago. Each pigment has been influenced by over a thousand generations of innovators from cultures all over the world, walking well-known routes to harvest, experimenting with different binders, mixing, and painting. Alexis gives us a rundown of which organic materials produce which color. So there's earth pigment, reds, oranges, yellows, browns, blacks were made from charred materials, so charred bones or charred plant material um, to make it into a carbon, which then is insoluble, and that's crushed down and mixed with a binder, and then whites were also available as like chalks in certain deposits. And there are green earths available, but they're more um, rare. Then you have uh, your mineral pigments like lapis lazuli or malachite or azurite. And you can imagine after thousands and thousands of years only painting with red, orange, yellow, black, white, how exciting it would be to come across these like very vibrant blues. So then here in the Renaissance and ultramarine blue, lapis lazuli is like more expensive than gold. and Everybody's freaking out about it, and it's written into contracts. Mary's robes were always painted in ultramarine blue because it kind of showed the wealth of whoever was commissioning the painting. You can have metallic pigments that are made from crushed mica powders, 
there's lake pigments like carmine or a lot like rose matter lake mm-hmm. like that's made from the matter root and then adhered to they use different things to turn it into a an insoluble medium the carmine is made from cochineal which is a scale insect that infests the nopal cactuses or there's the murex snail sea snails that you get that tyrian purple which was what was used to make that rich purple dye that was reserved for royalty prussian blue was made by accident that was the first synthetic color that was produced that was more modern and the egyptians had a synthetic blue that they were able to make but that was lost somehow over time then a little bit later on in Europe, they they produced a competition among chemists and scientists. The first scientist who could figure out how to synthetically replicate lapis lazuli would win this prize. And so two chemists were, I think they were French, were actually able to, to synthesize lapis into ultramarine blue. So then you could sort of have this first really like made intentionally synthetic color. And their intention was to make it so that it could be less expensive and more readily available. And that sort of spurred this whole like explosion of synthetic colors. In just listing a handful of colors, Alexis has touched on history, politics, and culture. Because pigment is so tied to land, researchers can link specific pigments used by our ancestors to specific geological phenomena. Pigment is also embedded in commerce and colonization. When Alexis mentions certain colors being written into contracts, She's referring to agreements between European artists and their patrons. Customers wanted a specific percentage of a rare pigment used so that viewers of the painting could literally see their wealth and status in the final depiction. There are so many of these rabbit holes we could go down in terms of the cultural significance of specific colors, from red ochre, one of the oldest colors first used in prehistoric times, to shields green invented in 1775 by a Swedish chemist, a color which is thought to have accelerated the death of Napoleon and several members of Napoleon's household since the color lined the walls of his home, and when the pigment is exposed to moisture, it creates copper arsenic, which then evaporates into the air. Once you start learning about pigment, it is very addictive. Color is a part of life, and so much of it is a material we've manipulated to multiply the colors of the natural world. It's this incredibly visible, yet very overlooked culture we're surrounded by all the time that has influenced everything. And once you start noticing it, there's so much to learn. While discussing pigment can lead to a series of heady history lessons and encyclopedic explorations, getting connected to the material world usually happens in a more literal, tactile way. It's that moment we're going to focus on. I come from a pretty artistic family, definitely on my mom's side. Um, So we always had a lot of art materials around and we had a closet that was filled with all sorts of things like collage materials and like little packing chips and scraps of leather and um, many different types of paper. Um, But always just came back to watercolors. It's just one of my favorite things to play with. And I would just kind of spread out all over the dining room, like all over the dining room, count like table and the floors and just be making like paintings after painting, just exploring what it wanted to do on its own and making big messy washes and folding the paper and hat, you know, just like very experimental and fun and messy. Kids can take up a lot of space. 
Their imaginations propel them forward, and often one project becomes ten. A corner of the dining room table becomes a growing semicircle of crafts, tangents, and side notes. It's a privilege to spread out and let creative play float. Not everyone has the space or the parental permission to make a mess. And if you've graduated from kid to grown up, now you are in charge of allowing yourself that freedom. What gets in the way? Messy play, unplanned processes, and new challenges. I think these are essential for feeding our souls. Feeling safe is a big part of expressing creativity because it can feel vulnerable. What does a safe environment for trying something new feel like for you? Also, how are we defining creativity? It's commonly known as the generation of ideas or possibilities, a strategy for problem solving or a way of communicating. Creativity is strongly associated with the arts, but the arts do not have a patent on this term. Creativity shows up in hobbies, interests, life issues. Living with illness and disability requires us to be extremely creative, reacting and adjusting to natural disasters, weather, a pandemic, dealing with racism, sexism, and other isms that make it difficult to just live life. Then there are personal moments of mundane creativity. Your cat keeps knocking over your favorite plant, so you devise a magnetic feline combatant cozy for said plant. Am I a cat person? Yes. Do I have a plant? Yes, yes I do. Is this a personal story? Maybe. Where are the moments in your life where your creativity feels safe to thrive? Your version of Alexis's dining room table. While you're walking through a city, your body is moving, your mind wandering. In your kitchen, where you spread ingredients on every countertop as you try out a new recipe. When you're watering your plants, noticing new growth or pesky pests, trimming, tending. Once you have a place or activity in mind, think about the voice in your head while that's happening, the way you narrate or don't, the way you react to yourself or your surroundings in those moments. Hold on to that thought, we'll come back to it later. Speaking of coming back to something, having consistent access to a safe space to do an activity we enjoy means we return willingly and the materials involved can become a version of home. And I kind of kept coming back to water. I did my undergrad degree in architecture and oftentimes I would do these really tight graphic renderings and then use like a little bit of watercolor and I just loved that contrast of like the super tight precise pencil lines and like these washes of color that felt more loose and free. And then also in graduate school I, I ended up using a lot of watercolor and I think it wasn't until I started really researching watercolor and learning how to make it that I understood why I kept coming back to it. Um, but I really feel like it's the most pure way to work with in a paint medium uh, because the binder is just gum arabic which is tree sap. Um, which is just kind of like the most invisible way to bind those little particles together, the pigment particles. Because if you think about acrylic paint, you're basically mixing in those insoluble color particles into a plastic base. It's kind of the same idea with um, oil paint. You're mixing it into linseed oil or poppy seed oil, and the, the medium itself is so present. And watercolors are just bound together by these little bits of tree sap. So how do you turn pure pigment into watercolor? What does the process of paint making actually look and feel like? You take your pigment, you put a little 
mound on a flat hard surface. It could be either glass or a slab of marble. And you make a little divot in the center and you introduce some medium. And you just start mixing it together with a palette knife. So you just go pretty slowly and you use your palette knife to sort of fold in the medium. Um, and once that's all incorporated, you mull it. A muller is usually made out of glass and it kind of has a handle on the top and it's flat and hard on the bottom. And what I like to kind of think of that as like a finished seeing sandpaper. So it's that really fine grit where you are just smoothing out the whole volume of the paint. Making it really well incorporated and making sure each little particle is coated in the gum arabic so that you can make sure that it'll adhere to the surface of whatever you're painting. Then you pan it. So you're going to slowly kind of build little dollops of paint in the pan to get it to be the right height. And then you kind of tap it down and then you fill the next pan. I would love to hear about a specific color that you're just in love with right now and why. I mean, I feel like my whole life I actually have felt really confused by color and I've tried to read color theory to understand it and it just didn't make sense to me. But I'm such a tactile person that as soon as I really saw pure pigment, it was like color is a material to understand just like any of the other materials that I felt like I understood it more in relation to architecture. It's just like wood is good at these things, like concrete is good at these things, it has these textural qualities. and it feels cold. It has just this more tactile quality. It's there for you to feel and play with and understand. So I came across Pure Pigment. Here's this material to play with and feel and understand and making it into paint is the way to get to know it. And then it gives you this level of information for when you go to paint with it. Alexis made a reference to color theory and I just want to slow it down a little. Color theory is the study of the relationship between colors. It's very technical and it feels like math. When people begin to study color theory, it involves a lot of color wheels, charts, swatches, with an understanding of mixing colors, what a warm or cool color is, how human beings perceive colors, how they visually mix, match, or contrast when side by side. It can get pretty elaborate and honestly, like, isn't my favorite. So I totally get Alexis's initial confusion with color and her aha moment when she realizes that with pigment, colors have understandable tactile qualities. Each specific pigment will have its own unique characteristics based on its chemical makeup. You get to know it and you're kind of trying to figure out what it wants or what it doesn't want. They all just have their own little personalities. Some of them might be very thirsty, so they want a lot of medium, but you kind of can't get tricked into giving it too much medium because then once you put it in the little half pans, it might just dry and crack and shrink to a level where you can't sell it. You kind of run through this process of like, okay, I know that this is an earth pigment, Earth pigments tend to be very thirsty and very dry and want a fair amount of medium, but they, at the same time, you could introduce a lot of medium and they'll never become runny. They'll always sort of stay a little chunkier, like a little bit more like peanut butter. And that can feel like confusing if you've made another 
paint color that is a very fine particle size will kind of quiz each other and get really excited about like some people be like, oh, well, those, yeah, that, those pants are like French vermilion, but like mixed with like a little bit of zircon yellow. And then one of us will be like, yeah, but like with a little primer white mixed in, you know, mm-hmm. and then like, we're just like, get really excited that, <laughs> that somebody, cause we all, we can all like visualize those colors mixing together. Oh, like, oh yeah. You totally nailed it. Like it's exactly those like, three colors. We just get really excited. You probably noticed that Alexis started saying we, she's referring to fellow paint makers at Case for Making a team that has grown over the past four years. When you're in community with people who work with the same material as you, there is a common language and sensitivity. Often you find yourselves seeing things similarly. Alexis and her team had to close down the shop to the public when the pandemic hit. A few months in, they began to coordinate COVID-safe working sessions so that the paint makers could still connect with one another and their material. Feels like you're all on a team, but connecting it back to the material you love so much. We have like such a sweet group of people who are here and we're definitely pretty bonded over the the color experience and talking about it and figuring it out and, and also coming up with the blends together and trying to figure out recipes and testing that. Um, it's always just been so fun when like we, we gathered together to make our own paints gray. Um, and it ended up being like, I think there was like eight of us here when we did that and we were just like trying to figure out our recipe just by color mixing with our regular watercolors and then making big batches of paint and kind of slowly measuring and introducing like a little bit more of each of the colors and then taking it to the front window and like mixing it up and swatching it on the paper and all talking about like how we wanted it to be if we wanted it a little bit more like purple or a little bit more green or it's just so fun to be in those moments with and you're just all absorbed and just so in it uh, and get so excited like when we get when we make it and it's just so fun spending quality time with a specific material changes your reality because it changes how you perceive the world around you certain sensations are heightened i ask alexis how her relationship to pigment shows up in everyday moments i can't go anywhere without thinking about our colors i'm constantly color mixing in my head so i'll be like oh the man we really nailed it with our cfm cypress like it's really the color of a cypress tree and it really you can't really see that like fluorescent glow that's got sort of behind there and that color and i get i just sort of think about those things all the time or lichen that i saw on this hike down in carmel was like i almost couldn't color match it from our So we've talked a lot about pigment, where it comes from, how it can behave, how we turn it into paint, and the community that we can discover when we delve into a particular material. But what about the act of painting? Watercolor is like my medium of like um, decompression. And so when I dip my paintbrush in my paint, I typically paint right what's in front of me, like stuff in my room or eyes. So I guess I was just curious, okay, like yeah. when, you, when you do dip your toe when in, I do dip my toe when in. you just, what comes out of your brush? I like to layer single strokes of color. I like to do repeats of the same thing and then sort of examine how they're different so that I can discover things that happen that I'm I'm not trying to make happen. You can try to be as intentional as you want, but with watercolor, there's always going to be things that happen that you don't want to happen. So then I try to take thinking out of it where I'm just building these layers of single strokes and then looking at them after to see what happened. 
and then ask myself like why I like specific ones. For those of you who have never used watercolor, I highly recommend it. Watercolor can come in liquid or solid form. There are liquid watercolors that come in a bottle with a dropper or tubes of wet paint that are more like, I don't know, mayonnaise consistency. So, <laughs> that sounds so gross. I don't know, mayonnaise consistency? Like, you, you know, paint is paint. Solid watercolor looks like candy or colorful miniature loaves of bread and comes in little pans. You need to add water to the pan to get the pigment moving. Once it is softened, you fill your brush up with color and apply it to watercolor paper. If you've already wet the paper beforehand, the paint springs onto the page and the pigment seems to travel on its own, creating patterns like what Alexis was describing earlier, water moving across earth. It's mesmerizing. You can make a line, a squiggle, a blob, a dot. You can blend colors. You have the freedom with that color to make a mark that is completely your own. And with a dab of new color or a splash of water, you can completely transform it. Can you describe a little bit for someone who maybe has never worked with watercolor or never noticed and never paid attention so, so closely, what are some things that watercolor does that um, we might not want it to do? Well, I think it comes back to what I was saying earlier about like understanding that each of these colors are made from dry, pure pigment which we know is insoluble. So it's sort of like grains of sand on the beach. There's so much change that happens because as the water hits the surface of the paper and the pigment particles, they're just floating around. They're all floating in the water. As the water evaporates, it sort of leaves these trails and pushes the pigment around. And then it evaporates to this point where it's gone and the particles are on the paper. I feel like the most important aspect of why I love what I do is because of the people who I get to work with. When I opened the store, I, I really, I, there was no planning that went into it. I was like getting divorced at the time and I had a full-time job and we had the space already. So it was really more, I think I just needed something to just pour my energy into. Um, so there was no business plan. There was no really thought beyond like, I'm not risking that much by doing this. I had a job. I just put all the opening inventory on my credit card, tried to do everything as cheaply as possible. I never expected to hire anybody. And then the first person I hired, it just, be, it just felt like such a gift to be able to work with them. The second person I hired is still here and we're super close. And she's been here since I first brought the first Kilo of Ultramarine Blue and has just been like right there in every color conversation and, you know, she's seen all of this come together and we got through the closing of the shop and pandemic times, mainly just her and I keeping it going. And every person who's joined us over the years, it's just happened really naturally. So you're just have this really lovely group of women making paint together and it's been like the most fun and most rewarding aspect of 
this whole business. What we sell is a byproduct of the time that we spend together. And it just has become really important, I think, for all of us to be able to have each other and this place to be able to cope over the past. It's almost every day that one of us is just like, I'm just so happy that I get to come here. <laughs> like, it's just so nice to have a place to go that's not at home and with people who who we all feel comfortable with and trust and um, get to just like laugh and talk about color and it saved me during this time for sure. Two paint makers, Raleigh and Gina, share what it's meant for them to continue working with pigment during COVID. Hi, my name is Gina. And so I did make paint during the pandemic. So it was like, a, it was like a, a check-in with reality every time I came to make paint. And it was also very meditative. And I was also listening to a lot of like audiobooks in the first few weeks by myself making paint. So it was like a very grounding activity. Hi, my name is Raleigh Clark and I am the session coordinator at Case for Making. I did start making paint with Case for Making during the pandemic. I've been working here for about eight months. We kind of have just taken a lot of care to be really safe and take care of one another and be distanced, but also be able to share space with each other. It's just been really nice to have that sort of sense of community to be able to engage with people outside of my immediate family, to be with our shop cat, Kokoro, who is just the sweetest little animal, and be with people that understand and kind of want to make the best out of a weird situation that we all are living in. So coming in and making paint and doing all of our other little case for making day-to-day tasks has been really beneficial to my mental health and I'm really happy to have a place and to have a group of friends that I can hang out with and have a good time with each day. During the holiday season of last year, I was in a really dark place. I uh, talked to a few friends about it and they asked me what usually helps when feelings of hopelessness and self-harm overwhelm me. To calm myself down, I usually imagine centering on the wheel. Or I visualize the sensation of wedging clay. Do you think a studio might be open? A friend asked me. It was worth a shot. I emailed two studios in Oakland and reached out to Matthew from episode one. Two of them weren't in operation due to COVID, but I heard back from one down the street from my house. Working my full-time job and producing this show, I didn't have much time to actually make stuff in the studio, but I started a work trade with them, which meant every Friday for two hours, I showed up to one of my happy places, whether I liked it or not. Of course, I always liked it, but sometimes it's hard to make yourself do something you know is good for you. The way I feel when I walk into a ceramic studio and interact with other clay people, as we call them, I feel like I'm coming home. The way the tools are organized, the test tiles, The clicking of the kilns as they cool. The calm, intentional way that people who work with clay move around a space. The easy way of talking to one another or not talking to one another. Getting into that studio, even when there were just two other people in the building, masked and wielding a spray bottle of disinfectant, pulled me out of that darkness. I could say it was the clay that saved me, but it was really the community. 
the safe space they've built just by showing up day after day, doing their thing. We are all born creative. We're all able to make marks and we're all curious. That's all you need to know. A lot of us were told that we are either good at art or not good at art and either pushed to pursue it or told to just sort of forget about it, that your strengths lie elsewhere. Nobody needs to be told that at all. And there's just something so ingrained in us, which is why you see all children drawing and making marks and exploring their own way of making marks. All people should be encouraged to explore their own way of making marks because just to have that creative outlet is in service of everybody. I think so often we're, if we think about being creative, we have this narrative in our head that we're supposed to produce something good and practice so that we can get to a place where we can produce something that's good. And if we can just take that out of it, of it, just like that doesn't matter. That's just like this outside voice and get back to just that childlike playful curiosity and just explore materials and marks and color and your own way of doing all of these things. That's a creative practice. Alexis brings up a common internal conflict here. The conflict between trying to be good, successful, productive, versus exploring the unknown, making a mess, or doing something just because. One challenge with making art that I personally have, uh, people always want to know what something means or why I made it. I don't feel whatever I've done needs to be or wants to be explained. That need to explain and define, is it just a part of being human to want to know? Or is there another reason for that pressure? If you were to look at all the creative practices that have produced the enduring, meaningful parts of our society, there may have been a time where it didn't make sense to do that thing, or it seemed silly to someone, or it wasn't making a lot of money. With creative practices, there is always that tension. Injustice comes into play when people with class privilege don't feel that tension as acutely. They have more freedom to be creative, to play around and make a mess even if it doesn't pay the bills. This is a major injustice because expressing creativity is a human right. A lot of creative expression does not meet the expectations and rules of a capitalistic society, which is why art can still be seen as being on the outside, on the margins, the other. So many of us have been programmed to prioritize being good, whatever that means being productive, to make money, to be successful, paying bills, getting health insurance, putting food on the table. It makes sense that a lot of these things would come before spreading out a bunch of watercolor paper on the floor and making whatever marks come to you. And yet, that activity is so valuable. It gives you a chance to commune with yourself, see the impulses of your mind play out on paper, reflect on what feels good to you. Figure out who you are and what you want. I love going to museums. I love seeing finished work. All of that has incredible value. It's not what I'm talking about. This is like 
all people are creative and we need to reinforce that. And it doesn't matter if your stuff is never in a museum. It doesn't matter if anybody even ever sees it. It's okay to generate ideas and make marks and have an output that's only for you. And what you've just said just reminds me visually of, of you making marks and making marks and making marks for the to, to notice things that just come up. Something that I feel so many people are robbed of. The only thing that matters is what you like. You kind of have to like redo this process of unlearning all of that negative self-talk that kind of cuts ideas off. You have to unlearn how your brain sort of just goes to that place of like, this isn't good or why am I even making this? I don't even know what I'm doing. Great. You don't know what you're doing. Like then like whatever you do make will be so interesting and surprising to you and might ask you other questions, you know, right. to, that will generate other answers that you make making marks and like which marks of yours do you love you know just kind of like falling in love with your own way of making marks and just like letting that be enough and interesting and fun alexis points out this phenomena regardless of a person's field their material their skill level their experience with the arts there is often this reaction either out loud or in your head what am i doing i am not good at this there is a time and place for criticism in the creative process. And let me tell you, it's at the end. Critique is a healthy way to reflect on what you've done. But too often, this inner critic in our minds jumps in way too soon. It's inappropriate. It wants to analyze, protect, say no, stay safe. Now, honestly, I totally thought I overcame this. I thought that since I have been making art my whole life, I have somehow tamed that voice. But that's not true. When I tried weaving with Danielle, the second episode of the show on fiber, I felt nervous that I was going to do something totally embarrassing or involuntary. Like I was going to break the loom or be too slow on the uptake. My hands felt weird. I found myself wondering, have I always had so many fingers? What does one do with all of them? Am I thinking about my hands too much? What did she say? Oh God, this is torture. This is also how I felt when I took a surf lesson with my unbelievably kinesthetic sister who has been dancing her entire life. She stood up on the board after about her third try and I could tell, or at least I thought I could tell, my instructor was so disappointed that he was stuck with the uncoordinated, out of breath sibling. Me, that me, I'm that, I'm the sibling. So I went deeper. Where else in my life does this inner critic show up? And who do they sound like? The voice for me has changed over time. For a while, and I think a lot of people can relate to this, it was my mother's voice telling me I should shower more, I should eat a bigger salad, you know, life stuff. Then, strangely, in my 20s, it morphed into the voice of my former partner. It took me nearly two years to extract that from my daily existence. Now, my inner critic is most active when I spill something in the kitchen. It's kind of like a scene from Lord of the Rings when Gollum fights with himself, aka Smeagol. You spilled three cups of cashews on the floor, you idiot! But it was an accident. I don't know. Do you know how much you impacted your carbon footprint? I'm a monster. I'll never have cashews again. I'm sorry. Wash them! Wash them! Individually dry them! Sorry about that. Uh, that idea really escalated, and the associate producer is a huge Lord of the Rings fan, so I blame 
them, getting to know my present day inner critic, they are a potent blend of overconfident authority and unrelenting insecurity. A blend of very specific standards, expectations, and values that, if I can align with them, everything will be okay. I will be good and safe. Sprinkle in a dash of middle schooler me who wants to get an A and make teacher happy, and boom, my inner critic has been conjured. They are... They are not fun. They remind me of Hermione halfway through Prisoner of Azkaban. Very stressed out, little mean, and overly committed to being in two places at once. In psychology, the inner critic is a defense mechanism we've nurtured over time. We are extra hard on ourselves so that if people are hard on us, we've already endured the equivalent of a gruesome beating. You can't hurt me. I'm already suffering. (laughs) I win. It's ironic because we're trying to stay safe by creating an unsafe environment in our heads. Hmm. Who is that voice actually serving? And why is it more prominent in some situations but not others? Like, I'm very upset when I spill cashews on the kitchen floor. But when I spill paint everywhere, I don't, I don't care. When I break a plate in the kitchen, I'm, I'm practically violent towards myself. Earlier today, this, this actually happened like while I was writing this episode, I was rushing. I knocked a mirror into the window of my room, completely shattered the single pane window. And my reaction was like, whoopsies, that was kind of (laughs) silly. I feel like this has to do with safe spaces, like maybe some early childhood programming, possibly. Like, So if your inner critic comes out more frequently in specific situations, I wonder, why do these situations feel unsafe? Is your inner critic in a position where they have become an obstacle? There's no way we ever completely remove the inner critic. They are a part of us, a mechanism that may, in certain circumstances, result in learning from mistakes or avoiding impulsive behavior. Like at some point in time, book three Hermione or late night Gollum might be useful to my life. But seeing them for who they are, I know I don't have to do what they say. Circling back to creativity, these inner critics are quick to come out of the woodwork because trying new things can feel vulnerable. I think the key for changing the way we talk to ourselves is a knowledge that we are not alone in this struggle. When we air out our inner critics and show someone else what's going on in our heads, honestly, it all becomes a bit more tangible. You can include someone else in the conversation. Honestly, I feel so much better now that you know how upset Gollum and Hermione get about spilled cashews. Try it. Conjure your inner critic and introduce them to your closest friends. How does the interaction go? In the context of art making, this means engaging with others. Why not include other people in your creative ventures? Changing up the texture of your creative exploration can lead to unexpected discoveries, including a feeling of safety and confidence. Alexis points this out when she reflects on classes she's taken with other watercolorists. I'll see the results of what I made after being taken through this process as another artist's vision or something or practice. And I'll be like, this is so obvious that I made this. You know, like, of course, I solved these problems in my head this way on paper. Oh, I always respond in this way. These are the marks that are the result of that decision. And how do you sort of flip that on its head and be like, this is my automatic response. And how do I understand what the opposite could be? 
and how do I use that information to challenge my own ideas and my own practice and keep exercising that practice. You don't have to know where you're going. You just have to start somewhere and follow a path or like follow your own line of inquiry. Note the connection between the community of people working with a particular material, externalizing your inner critic, and feeling safe to explore a new, uncertain activity that can evolve into a feeling of home. To me, this connection represents a narrative that dispels some myths around artists and creative people in general. There's this idea that we are geniuses in our studios, creating in isolation. That we are starving on the margins of society, fueled by trauma and born with God-given talent that can't be taught. Like, sometimes that might be true, but no, no, that's not, it's not, it's not true. Once we begin understanding our relationship to the material world, listening in on materials, and learning from all kinds of makers, we learn over and over that creativity is human nature. And people who embrace this part of themselves are makers, not in the sense of making art, but in the sense of co-creation. They are building nurturing, life-giving community. And you deserve to be a part of it. Material Feels is produced by me, your host, Katherine Monahan. I'm a writer and audio storyteller with a background in art education. I live in Oakland, California. Associate producer Liz Delise composes original music for the show, and this episode features sounds from freesound.org as well as underscores and music created just for the show by Liz, also by MSFX. The show is a labor of love, and your contributions mean the world. Here's how you can support us. Share the show with your friends and family. Overshare it. Just just do it. Put it on social media. Talk about it over dinner. Text the link to people. Word of mouth goes a long way. Follow the show on Instagram at Material Feels. And find us on Patreon. And at long last, here is an original piece of music composed by Liz, inspired by glass as a sculptural material, and our interview last month with glass artist Deborah Tresco. Swimming, 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 swimming.